ignorance is bliss, or so we have been told. If, if you look it up, the definition goes something like this. Lack of knowledge results in happiness. So you can be an idiot and still be happy. <laughs> or it is more comfortable not to know certain things. Some are saying is what you don't know can't hurt you. Well, th- well that saying actually comes from a poem entitled Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College by English poet Thomas Gray, composed in 1742. Interestingly, Gray only published, published 13 poems in his life, yet he was wildly popular in England. He's considered the most important English poet of the mid-19th or mid-18th century. He was even offered the national title of Poet Laureate, which he declined. But, but that line, ignorance is bliss, comes from the last stanza of his po- poem, and we actually <laughs> misquote it. Of course we do. Uh, one, one article suggested it is one of the most misconstrued phrases in the English language. The line actually goes like this, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. <laughs> Changes the whole meaning. In other words, if you think ignorance is a a good thing, you'll also think wisdom a bad thing, folly. Ignorance, you see, is not bliss. I would suggest we face a similar challenge in the evangelical church today. What, What do I mean? How many times have you heard statements like these? I don't know that much. I just love Jesus. As if that's a good thing and ignorance is somehow good. I'm not into theology. (laughs) You do understand theology is the study of God. Doctrine just divides the church. I would suggest it is actually the absence of doctrine that divides the church. I don't have a system of theology. I just try to love people and do good. That's good, I suppose, but what is good? Which may sound like this. What matters is social justice with or without the gospel. You ever heard or even said things like that? And we we almost celebrate ignorance and condemn knowledge. After all, knowledge puffs up, right? According to pollsters Gallup and Barna, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they become a nation of biblical illiterates. Wow. Increasingly, America is biblically illiterate, George Barna says, even though 78% of us profess to be Christians. And he gives some data to support that statement. How, how illiterate are we? A fairly recent Barna survey reveals fewer than half of American adults, and this is all American adults, can name, less than half can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot name more than two or three of the disciples. (laughs) We can always pull out Peter, James, and John. You know, you can always throw in Judas. 
60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. No wonder, Barna says, people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. 82% of Americans think God helps those who help themselves is a verse in the Bible. 82%. I won't ask for a show of hands. It was, in fact, a Benjamin Franklin quote who was not a Christian, and that statement is actually, actually anti-Scripture. Now, I should tell you it does get better. Of those who profess to be born-again Christians, only 81% said that it was in the Bible. To lighten the mood, here are some humorous results. 12% of adults think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Fifty percent of graduating high school seniors think Sodom and Gomorrah were married, husband and wife. A large number, he didn't give the percentage, a large number of those surveyed thought the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. That was actually Jesus. Greatest sermon ever preached. As Dr. Al Mohler wrote, we are in big trouble. America, Americans increasingly live in a scripture-free public space, as if that's good, meaning we live in a post-Christian America. Is, is it any reason then that the church in America, largely biblically illiterate, is unable to defend the faith? Just this week, one of my daughters mentioned a conversation she had with someone who had visited Alliance once but didn't like it because, well, the message was expositional. That means verse by verse. I like topical sermons better. Now, that's not to slam topical sermons. There's a place um, for that. But the reason she didn't like it is because we go verse by verse. She then went on to suggest her preference was the prosperity gospel. You can only arrive at the prosperity gospel by ignoring the contextual teaching of Scripture. In other words, being ignorant. Did you just say prosperity? Yes. I would also suggest ignorance of biblical truth is not bliss, not to be lauded, but graciously and gently exposed. And biblical literacy, even theology and doctrine, is to be encouraged. I will go one step further. Listen carefully. To remain in biblical illiteracy or biblical infancy is to put your faith at risk. Several authors I read this week suggested that you are either moving forward into faith or you are declining. There is no status quo. If that is true, and I think it is, is it any wonder churches across our country, 78% of which say they are Christians, churches across our country are in decline? Is, there any, is it any wonder that many of our professing, believing youth leave their churches, go to college to be faced with unbelieving professors only to desert the faith. The number is somewhat like 70%. Again, biblical illiteracy, doctrinal ignorance is not to be encouraged, but gently and firmly confronted. So says our author 
in our continuing study of Hebrews. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Let me remind you of the context. The author is writing to Jewish believers who were facing severe persecution. And I don't want to understate that. They were facing severe opposition. It was, it was tough to be a Christian. A lot tougher than just ridicule. As a result, some had apparently quit their Christian faith and returned to Judaism. Other were others were considering doing the same thing. So he writes both to encourage and to warn them. His encouragement comes like this. Jesus and the new covenant he brought are better. The, the new covenant is better than the old. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. As such, Jesus is better. Well, he's better than angels, chapters 1 and 2. He's better than, than Moses and Joshua, chapters 3 and 4. Now the author has launched into Jesus is better than Aaron, the first high priest. And as the great high priest, he's better than all, uh, any and all high priests before him. He's better than the, the, than the um, old Levitical system of sacrifices. Why? Because it, in addition to being the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus comes from a better eternal priesthood the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's exciting. This subject is so important that it will take us all the way to the middle of chapter 10. Now, we have been seeing along the way, the author also issues, issues some severe warnings. If Jesus is better, greater, the fulfillment, why would you leave? After all, Jesus promised you're going to suffer. That's in the Bible. He did. Why would you go back to the old covenant when it is simply a type pointing to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ? If Jesus is better, in fact, is the only son of God, the only way to God, why would you leave? To do so has disastrous eternal consequences. We have seen that there are five such warnings in the book. They cover large sections in the letter. We've already looked at the first two. In chapter 2, he said, we must, listen, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift. If we neglect this great salvation, how will we escape judgment? We won't. In chapters 3 and 4, he warned us not to harden our hearts like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Hold on to that. Don't harden your hearts. To do so is to die in unbelief like they did, again, with eternal consequences. And all along the way, he is encouraging us to persevere in the faith. My brothers and sisters, do not give up. And so again... He's turned his attention to Jesus is greater than any high priest since, his, since he's the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to, he'll talk much about that, how his sacrifice is better than any sacrifice offered by the high priest under the Levitical system. But, but, but we have a problem. Having introduced the great high priest to us, he takes another aside to give his third warning, stretching from chapter 5, verse 11, Really, uh, almost till the end of chapter 12. Uh, excuse me, the end of chapter 6. Many suggest that this is the most severe warning in the book. Others suggest the most severe warning in the New Testament. <laughs> you say more severe than the ones we've already looked at? Yes. 
which is one reason why, and I have told you many times, we go verse by verse through books so that we cover passages we might otherwise be tempted to skip. Further, these passages give us deep teaching, doctrine, to help us grow in our faith because ignorance is not bliss. You are either growing or you are declining. There's no such thing as a straight line. Let me outline this warning passage. I, I think you'll find this outline helpful. The, the reader's shame, that's what we're going to look at today. And then the reader's warned by that severe passage. Now, as I looked at the calendar, I realized next week is Mother's Day. Welcome to church, mothers. So I've decided I'm, I'm, I'm going to preach a Mother's Day message next week, and then the next week we've got a missionary speaking, and then the next week I'll preach this severe warning, and then I'm going to leave the country. <laughs> Literally. And then we're going to see the readers encouraged, and then the readers assured. I show you that so that you know some encouragement and assurance are coming. But this week and the next time we're in the, in the book of Hebrews, they are quite challenging. But, but my brothers and sisters, I don't, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know the word of God. Ignorance of truth, doctrine, theology, these tough passages is not at all helpful. Let's read the text for today. Readers shamed. Starting in verse 10 to pick up the all-important context. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus, it's the context, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, brings us to the edge of our chairs. Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Though by this time you want to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature, who because of, the, of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You understand what he just says? Your, your, your knowledge of the, the scripture, of doctrine, the deep things he wants to teach us, impacts your understanding of good and evil. You, you have in trouble today living a good, moral, Christian, faithful life? Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is quite challenging. He says, I want to demonstrate that Jesus and his high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical practices, but I've, there's a problem here. It's hard to explain. Why? Well, you, since you have become, notice, since you have become, not are, have become dull of hearing. This suggests that they weren't that they had become so. There, there was a time that they, were, that they were learning the Word of God, that they were going deep in the Word of God, but they had become dull of hearing because you cannot put your Christian life into neutral. You will either grow or you will decline. 
And in declining, you may fail to persevere and fall from the faith. Don't fall away from Jesus. This is the overriding concern of the author in this book. So for today, let's look at the outline of the text. It's really a tough one. Your lack of growth has put you at risk, so it's time to grow up. Verses 11 to 14 lay out the problem. The first two words of verse 11 could mean concerning Jesus or concerning Melchizedek or could be concerning which, meaning concerning Jesus and this whole priesthood of Melchizedek. As I suggested earlier, this is what he wants to talk about. He has much to say about it, but he won't, at least not until he gets to chapter 7. Melchizedek is dropped through the rest of chapter 6. But after having challenged and, and warned them, encouraged and assured them, he's going to come back to this guy. But he says, I can't say much right now because you have become dull or slow or lazy of hearing. The, the, that word only appears one other time in the entire New Testament, by the way, in chapter 6 of Hebrews. In fact, it forms what is called an inclusio. He, he mentions it here. He mentions it again in verse 12, and it, it kind of boxes everything in. It's important that we look at it because he defines the opposite of being dull of hearing. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. There it is so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. That's the word, dull, la lazy, but, but, but rather imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You see, if you become dull of hearing, his point is you might not inherit. You might not inherit the promises. I want to be clear that being dull of hearing is not a physical problem. In fact, sitting right back there in the last service, we had a, a deaf family who comes every, every week. Had nothing, it's not talking to them. It's a spiritual problem. It is being disinterested in the things of God, being disinterested in the Word of God. It, it's like hearing stuff as kind of background noise. You, you, you hear the highway noise as you're driving down the highway, or elevator music. Or announcements at the airport. The Charlotte Douglas International Airport is a non-smoking facility, blah, blah, blah. And we hear it, but we don't. We tune out. And it never penetrates and changes the heart, and our hearts become hard. You see, he's saying the same thing. He said in the last warning, don't let your hearts be hard. Don't become dull of hearing. There's this idea that goes around every once in a while. goes like this. I've heard it through my entire ministry. It, is a, it goes like this. It is a sin to bore people with God's word. <laughs> I get that. The teacher, the pastor, he ought to do his best to present the, the truth of God's word in interesting and compelling ways. Pastors ought to work very, very, very hard I, I, I get that. I don't want to bore you with God's word. But, but, but how about this? How about this? It is a sin to be bored with God's word. Is it possible that sometimes the problem is not the speaker? I know sometimes it is. Is it possible that sometimes the problem is not the speaker, but the hearts of the listeners who become dull or slow or lazy? 
The opposite of spiritual dullness is diligence. This was the author's desire. This is my desire. That, that, That each of you show the same diligence. That means concentrated effort so as to realize, notice, full assurance of hope until the end. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I made the statement that perseverance is proof of salvation and gives us assurance. Uh, someone, a visitor, came up to me afterward, it's quite animated, suggested that I was wrong. That he said that if we point to perseverance for assurance, he says, then what we're doing is we're looking inward, we take our eyes off Christ. And uh, and, and we put our eyes on ourselves and our work. And now I understand what he is saying. Of course, yes, the purchase and effectiveness of our salvation comes solely through the work of Christ. But the author of Hebrews everywhere, even here, says our diligence in the faith produces assurance of hope until the end. Because faith without corresponding works is dead, meaningless, idle, lifeless worthless. So don't be dull of hearing. Don't be lazy. The word hearing only appears one other time in the book of Hebrews, other times elsewhere, but only one other time in the book of Hebrews, back in chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they, that's the Israelites also, but the word they heard, that's the word, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. So I would suggest dullness of hearing is apathetic, passive, ho-hum hearing not united with faith. What he wants, what he's suggesting is that we have active, diligent, faithful hearing united with trust, believing what you diligently hear and study and read. This is the word of God. I believe it. Survey, go back to the survey, a slim majority, just over 50% of people in the United States believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The author goes on. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Meaning, these were not new believers. They had been Christians for some time. How long? I don't know. How long have you been a Christian? So so they should be able to teach or share truth. He doesn't mean that everyone ought to be an apt to teach elder or a pastor standing behind the pulpit. Certainly, there are those with the gift of teaching. But everyone ought to grow to the point that they can teach someone, disciple someone in the faith. There is always someone behind you. And there will always be people behind, if you're growing. If you're not, guess what? Everyone passes you and leaves you behind. It's not a competition. Don't misunderstand me. Everyone ought to grow to the point that they can disciple someone. And not just the elementary things of the faith, but the deep things. Do not say, oh, I don't know doctrine or theology. Then learn it. Pursue the deep teachings of the Word of God. 
Instead, you need, again, for someone to teach the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Lots of discussion about what that means. Elementary principles is a word that was used, like we use the word the ABCs. You need someone to teach you the ABCs, the the beginning, that's the literal word, the beginnings of the oracles of God. What is that? Again, lots of discussion. Most agree he's talking about the foundational principles of Christ as found in the Scripture. At this time, the New Testament was written primarily in the Old Testament. That's what he's getting ready to launch into in a very deep way. But they had remained in in the elementary ABCs of the Christian faith. They stayed in the shallow end of the pool. He says, I'm ready to dive into the deep end, but, but you're needing someone to teach you how to doggy paddle again. It's time to be beyond that. Contrast the listeners, the way they listen, learn, and grow with milk and solid food. Notice the end of verse 12, verse 13. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, read, baby. Several thoughts. Further, listen, there is nothing wrong with milk. Everyone needs milk as an infant. You don't give an infant a T-bone steak. You you start with, with milk. But as they grow and develop, you move beyond milk to solid food. You start with baby food, yum, yum. Whoever thought pureed pureed peas was a good idea? And then you move them to more substantial food. My point is milk is a good thing, and we never leave it completely. It's not a bad thing. It's foundational to the Christian life. I would say it's even central to the Christian life, but we don't stay there. You, you, You would become stunted in your growth. You don't see adults walking around with a bottle hanging out of their mouths. But you do see proverbial bottles, don't you? You've seen people who never seem to grow up, just kind of got stuck in middle school or high school. So also the church is filled with Christians who never seem to grow up. And we laud it. I don't know theology or doctrine. Don't intend to. I just love Jesus and the gospel. Listen, Jesus and the gospel are foundational, indeed central, but that is not all there is to the Christian faith. This is a rich, full book. Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile is pastor of Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. Frequent, I've heard him preach many, many times. It's wonderful frequent contributor to the Gospel Coalition. Just last week, just last week, he wrote an article entitled, Only Preach the Gospel? In the article, he suggested that there is much more to our faith in the gospel, as central as it is. I want us to be a gospel-centered church. Don't misunderstand me. He writes... A gospel-centered evangelicalism that becomes a gospel-only evangelicalism ceases to be properly evangelical. Gospel-only Christianity creates, uh, even creates hearing impairment. Wonder where he got that from. When well-intentioned Christians disciple to be gospel-only, hear parts of the Bible outside of their only grid, they actually respond as if it's something foreign to the Bible and to the faith. And I resisted the urge to to come up with a list of things that are in the Bible that when people hear, they go, I don't think I like that. It's in the Bible. He's right. He agrees with the 
author of Hebrews, if you only drink milk, the milk of the word, and you, you remain an infant unaccustomed to the word of righteousness, that is an understanding of the righteous life the faith requires. Yes, the righteousness of Christ saves us, and then the Spirit transforms us in, to be living a righteous life. It goes on in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained, don't miss this, to discern good and evil. Who can discern good and evil? Those who, who go into the deep things of the word of God. We don't need a bunch of babies running around. If you are, then you won't know the difference between moral good and evil. They have their senses trained to become mature. They know morality. They know right from wrong. Is it any wonder the churches across our country are accepting and even affirming things that the Scripture clearly speaks against? You know what I'm talking about. Professing believers affirm all types of sexual immorality, whether that's homosexuality or premarital Sex, pornography, after all, who does it hurt? Who are we to judge? Read the verse in its context. We are to judge. Don't you know that we with Christ are going to judge the world? Scripture is clear. Listen, because we have become dull of hearing, we, the church, can no longer speak in the public forum in the public square on issues of morality because we don't know issues of morality. And we've been convinced that what this teaches is outdated. What's the solution? Very quickly, verses 1 to 3. Here you have it. Time to grow up. Yes, we still need the foundational truths of the Christian faith. That's why we're about to observe communion in a couple of minutes. To be reminded of the gospel. It is central to our gatherings. But listen, it is time to grow up. What's the solution? Verse 1 of chapter 6 is quite interesting. You would expect him to say, so since you need milk, here you go. Everybody open up. He doesn't. He, he points out that it's time to move on. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of Christ, let us press on to maturity and not, lay, not laying a foundation again. It's time to leave these spiritual ABCs. Then he goes on to list six foundational things, which everyone notes form three pairs. And wouldn't it be interesting to do a six-message a six, uh, series on these six things? But these are the foundational things. We're supposed to have these figured out by now. That's the point. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. To what do these refer? Lots of discussion. Old Testament teachings which point us to Christ or foundational, the foundational gospel New Testament teaching. For example, is he saying it's time to leave the foundational teaching about repentance from dead works, that is, the, the Old Testament law that could never save anybody, and move on to faith toward God? Be, or is he saying we, we know about repentance? R read any sermon in the New Testament, and it begins with repentance, turning from sin that leads to death, and we turn in faith to Christ. Which one? I don't know. It seems to me it's both. It's all ultimately pointing to Christ anyway. 
So it's saying it's time to move on from the foundational Old Testament truths fulfilled in the New Testament, found in Christ and his gospel to things like, oh, I don't know, the high priesthood of Christ according to the order of Melchizedek. Yay! I can't wait. Instructions about washing, laying of hands. What's this? They, the word washings is the plural word for baptism. What does it mean? It's talking about ceremonial washings uh, in the Old Testament, baptism of re- repentance that they, John the Baptist did. He's talking about Christian baptism and its foundational nature. Maybe that's why it's plural. There's the difference in all this. Laying on of hands found through both testaments. What's he talking about? The placing of Aaron into the high priesthood by the laying of hands? Maybe, since he's talking about Christ in, in his high priesthood. Or the, the New Testament practice of ordaining men to gospel ministry. Or, or is it receiving the Holy Spirit and his gifts through the laying on of hands? We read about that in the New Testament. Which one is it? I don't know. But I do know this. It is foundational to the Christian faith. We all receive the Holy Spirit and his gifts at the moment of salvation. Don't you know that? I say this very gently. It's not my notes. Why are we having to plead for people to use their gifts to serve our children? You've received the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. You ought to be serving. Resurrection, future judgment, also found in both Testaments. This is our blessed hope that we'll be resurrected like Jesus because of his finished work, and we will be able to stand in the judgment because of his finished work. We know this, don't we know this? The point is this. These are important foundational basic truths, glorious truths, yes. Truths taught in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, yes. It is time to be able to talk now about mature themes, which we will do when we get to chapter 7. But before we do that, listen, we have to grow up. We must not think ignorance is bliss. We must pursue faithful, biblical maturity. We must be done with this, I love Jesus, but don't care much for doctrine, nonsense. Be done with that. We must be diligent to grow toward maturity. And this we will do if God permits. This is simply the author's way, uh, what we say in the South, Lord willing. Of course God is willing that we move on toward maturity. But it, like all the Christian life, from inception through perseverance to faithful end, takes the sovereign and gracious work of God's hand. That's what he's saying. To be clear, we never leave the gospel. It is, after all, of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is of first importance. It is not, however, of only importance. I close by asking you these questions. Ask yourself these questions. Am I growing as a Christian? Am I different today than I was last month last year or am I flatlined am I reading more studying the Bible more allowing it to penetrate and change my heart do I know more than I did a year ago after all Peter says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him let's pray Father, I thank you for this church.
I thank you for the truth that Michael reminded us of, that we want to become and multiply fully devoted followers of Jesus. I thank you that the top of the list of our core values is biblical authority. I, I thank you that this church is largely outside the norm. I know that. That, 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 that we have a, a group of people who are faithful to the scripture, who study it, who read it, who want it to change their lives, who, who accept it for what it is, the very word of God. But I also recognize in a church this size that this hour on Sunday morning may be the, the only time that some people even open the Bible. And so my prayer is that you would change us, that you would make us more people of the word. Help us to grow up, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.